Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Glenn Gordon Karen. Uh, now, he has had a wide and ranging career. Uh, we're talking, you know, uh, you, you, you uh, worked on Taxi, uh, Breaking Away, Remington Steel. Uh, I could go on and on. Medium, Tyrant on FX, Bull on CBS uh, most recently. Um, but w- today we're here to talk about Moonlighting, which is uh, one of the great shows of the 1980s. And we're going to talk about a lot of stuff there. I don't want to get into it too much just yet. Uh, but it is now on Hulu for the first time. It's available on streaming. Uh, and it's a very exciting thing because I think people, uh, I think it's, I wouldn't describe it as lost. It's not a lost TV show. It's still out there. People, But it, people have not had the chance to actually sit down and watch it for a long time. So it's exciting to get it back out there. Uh, Glenn, thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. Um, and I'm nobody's more excited about Moonlighting being on Hulu than I am. It's been about a four-year uh, quest to get it uh, back on streaming. And uh, I have to say that people over at Disney uh, really stepped up. They actually spent quite a bit of money restoring the show and uh, attempting to get most of the music rights and uh so it, it brings me a lot of pleasure knowing that uh, it's available for people to see. I want to I want to talk about rights because I am uh, I am a rights nerd. I like find all of the discussions about uh, music rights and all that to be really fascinating. And that, that's one thing I want to dive into. But first, uh, a little bit of sad news. Um, Robert Butler, who was the director of the pilot uh, of Moonlighting, recently passed away. I was wondering if I could get your your thoughts on him as an artist, uh, both working with him, but also, I, I mean, he worked on Star Trek. He worked on all sorts of uh, Bob know, great shows. Was, I, 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 I say this, and there's a touch of hyperbole in it, but it, the, the essence of it is the truth. He is the history of 20th century narrative television, dramatic television. I mean, you say Star Trek, but there's also Hogan's Heroes. There's Batman. I mean, one day I was sitting with him and I said, wow, you kind of invented op art, didn't you? Because if you remember in Batman, the guy would throw a punch and you'd see the pow. Um, He he did Hill Street, the pilot for Hill Street Blues, probably one of the most seminal, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of saying, hey, let's change how we do this. I mean, he was that guy. Um, There was a thing called the police tapes, which was a documentary. And he looked at that documentary and he said, I want this show to feel like that. And everything he wanted to do to do that was against, went against the grain of the way shows were done. And the network had very strong feelings against those. He said, you know, I, I wanted, he wanted to do it in black and white. They wouldn't let him. Uh, but he said, I want all the camera heads to be loosened. I want everything to wobble and shake. And I mean, he, he was, he, and, and he was so terrific with actors. He was a musician and he would talk to them like a musician. I, I, he, he, he'd say, hey, let's do it one more time. Let's, let's put a little wiggle in it. Let's, let's give it a little jazz. Let's, and he, he was just, just, just a phenomenal human being. I was lucky. We did three pilots together. Mm-hmm. I, I actually sort of set out like a heat-seeking missile. When I first came to California, there were two directors I wanted to work with. I wanted to work with James Burroughs, and I, and I had the good fortune of doing that when I was a taxi, but it was very, very brief. And the other one was I wanted to work with Robert Butler. I just admired his work enormously. Um, and I had foolishly turned down the opportunity to work on the first season of Hill Street Blues. At the time, it was called Hill Street Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found out he was going to be on Remington Steel. So I uh, 
you know, campaign for a job on Remington Steel, got it. We became friends and I started giving him scripts and saying, boy, would you get involved with this? Would you get involved with that? So we did three um, movie of the week pilots. They were called back then, back at ABC. The third one was Moonlighting. Everything I know about directing, I learned from him mostly about how one comports oneself on a set mm-hmm. and what it means to be a director, how you lead people, um, how you how you start to see a world and then how you share that with other people. He was just the most extraordinary person, um, just the most extraordinary person. Um, you know, he was a member of, I can't remember the name of the band. It was one of those teen bands, like from before I was born and um, just the coolest guy and, and so unexpected. I remember we were, we were shooting in New York once and it was back when people smoked cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And they would have these people on the corner who would pass out little tiny four packs of cigarettes, you know, in the hopes of, of course, getting you hooked on their cigarette. Mm-hmm. And um, we were walking down the street and somebody handed Bob a pack of cigarettes. And as far as I knew, Bob didn't smoke. He opened up the pack. He took out one cigarette, threw the other three away and smoked it. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, well, I just felt like a cigarette. I said, do you smoke? He said, no. I thought, I, I, was, I, mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but he had such great control over himself and his environment. And he was just, and just a great, 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 great human being um, and a terrific director. And, you know, sort of like the, the American film directors of the 40s who nobody paid much attention to for an awfully long time until I guess Andrew Saris first shined a light on them. Um, Bob, to me, is an extraordinary guy who spent most of his life in television um, and never really got, I didn't think, as much attention as he deserved. I at one time actually thought about doing a documentary about him and sort of presenting, hey, here's, here's this guy and here's the body of work. And it's not just episodes, because episodes are, episodes are challenging and really interesting, but you're basically taking a song that's already been written and sung and saying, well, here's another version of that. Mm-hmm. Pilots, pilots are this fascinating sort of, and, you know, and they become only more fascinating in the ensuing years. But, but, and Bob did so many important American television pilots. Uh, you can tell I get paid by the word, by the way. I'll just go on and on and on. But <laughs> no, no, this is this is great. And I, I, I want to talk about I want to talk about the pilot of, of Moonlighting in specifically the sense and how it, it is different from how the show from what the show became or, right. or 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 how it evolved, because it's so I had not I had not seen the the full pilot of Moonlighting until recently, until, you know, until it was on Hulu. Um, and so I was sitting there watching it. And I was just like, oh, this feels this feels different than the show I remember watching. Um, mm-hmm. And and it feels uh, it, it's more cinematic in a way, but it's also it just it's it, it is it's a, it's a different it's a slightly different thing. Um, so when you were when you're looking at when you re- revisit the pilot, when you look at it uh, now, what do you what do you make of it? And what do you think? Like, OK, here's I could see what we needed to change or did it just kind of happen spontaneously as the show goes, goes on? No, it's, it's, I'm going to answer the question by not answering the question. The great thing about, there's a lot of things that are horrible about 
series television. Um, And they've become less horrible over the years as the form has morphed. But one of the things that was horrible about series television back in the 80s and the 90s was you typically, you got a pilot, you did a pilot, then you did 13 episodes, and then you did 22 episodes. And the idea of making 22 good movies in a year is is an insane proposition. Um, But the good part of it was, it was sort of like jazz. There was a moment at which you sort of had to embrace the reality that there's an element of stream of consciousness that comes into it. So what you're doing, if you are a and I, showrunner is, is, is a word that wasn't around back then. But if you're somebody who creates a show and then has the good fortune to, to run that show, what I'm always doing is I'm going, I'm looking for. I, I used to say to people, they'd say to me, do you know where the show's going? And I'd say, absolutely not. And, I, and I'd say that as a badge of honor, because to me, that was the great thing about this form. You're going to do a 22-chapter book. You're going to do a 100-chapter book. And it's very Dickensian in, in its way, you know, it's, in that you don't know how long it's going to last. It may be 13 episodes. It might be six episodes. It might be 20 episodes. It might be 120 episodes. So what you're constantly doing is you're, you're taking your premise and you're retuning it based on the talents of the people that you're working with or the lack of talent of some people that you're working with, of the things that are going on in the moment in society that you could not have possibly anticipated, of the new understandings you have as a human being because we're all growing and changing as we as we move through things. So and moonlighting is to me a perfect example of that. Um, We cast Sybil. I had only half written the pilot and we cast Sybil. but casting the Addison part proved to be almost impossible. ABC at one point wanted to pay us off and said, just don't make it. We don't think the part's castable. I mean, they literally said, they said, Bill Murray has a movie career. We, mm-hmm. we don't think anyone is going to, with that kind of talent. And I brought Bruce in 11 times. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, as soon as I met him, I thought, oh, he's perfect. But as much as I knew that, I had no idea what the breath of that perfection was. So I remember we were shooting the pilot and um, we were shooting, I think at the Bonaventure Hotel and I, I heard this sound and I, it, was, it sounded like somebody playing the harmonica. And so I started sort of walking around behind things and you know, where you weren't supposed to go and I found Bruce and he was sitting on the floor playing a harmonica. And, and once I realized that he did that, I thought, well, I've, I've got to work that into the show. Um, and we did. In fact, if you look at the I mean, one of the great lies of the pilot is ABC, the only way they'd let me hire Bruce was if I promised, swore that he and Sybil Shepherd wouldn't get romantically involved because they looked at Bruce Willis and he was so not an ABC leading man. It, it was absurd to them that those two people would be together. I obviously felt differently and I lied and said, oh, no, no, they're not going to get romantically involved in the pilot. Of course they do. Um, But it took a really long time to convince them that not only was it a good idea, that it was a great idea. But my point is, as you move along, you suddenly discover, oh, your touchstones are this other person's touchstones. That Sybil had this whole encyclopedic understanding of classic movies because she had lived with Peter Bogdanovich and every night Peter would show mm-hmm. her a movie mm-hmm. and then explain to her why that movie was important. 
So she and I had that touchstone. And, and when I tell that story, of course, it sounds like a, a conversation of equals, but it wasn't. Right, right. I mean, literally, when I gave her the half of the script that convinced her to do the show, she said to me, oh, this is a Hawksian comedy. And I had no idea what a Hawksian comedy was. <laughs> she had to explain that to me. Um, Bruce and I had this other set of touchstones, which were the Three Stooges and the Bowery Boys. And I mean, just the stupidest stuff. But, but you know, it, we, we were virtually the same age. We came from very similar backgrounds. And so we could, we could talk in that language. Having said that, Bruce was the guy who also turned me on to Preston Sturgis. I mean, there was, there was this idea that I was the cinephile. And there were certain directors that I loved. And yes, I, I was sort of a cinephile, but so was Bruce Willis. So was Sybil Shepard. Mm -hmm. So for that matter, it was Elise Beasley. So everybody understood the grammar of what we were doing. But as we were moving through it, I would discover things or try things. I mean, I remember we did a, I don't know how far you are into the show. And I want to say it's in the first, very first short six episode season. We did a scene where they had to get into a big, important event. And there was a Secret Service guy like guarding the door. And they went up to the door and Bruce said, um, have you any chance, do you suppose, have you ever seen a man with a mole on his nose? And the guy standing at the door answers back. Anyway, they go through this thing. It goes back and forth. And it's all written like a Dr. Seuss book. Mm -hmm. And they, ending with, they get in the room, of course. Um, I remember when we shot that, um, they called from ABC and they said, you can't do that. <laughs> and I said, why not? And they said, well, because it just it takes all the jeopardy away. I said, what jeopardy? And they said, well, you know, maybe they can't get in. Maybe they'll get hurt. Maybe they'll get found. I said, I said it's a television show. Everybody knows they're not going to get hurt. They have to come back next week and do the television show. And they honestly thought I was out of my mind. And we would have that conversation through all of those five episodes in different ways. I remember he, at one point, they have to get into a door. So, and I, I was bored. By the way, you have to understand, you, I was someone who hated those shows, mm -hmm. boy-girl detective shows. I worked on Remington Steel only so I could get close to Bob Butler. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just thought they were silly shows. Uh, so when ABC came to me and I, I had this three pilot deal with them and we'd shot two of the pilots and frankly, they were way too arty for the room. Mm -hmm. And they came, so now that we're going to do the third pilot, and they said, we're going to tell you what to do. And I said, uh-oh, what, what's that? And they said, we want a boy-girl detective show. I said, oh, I hate those. They said, yeah, we want a guy who looks good in a tux and a girl who looks good in a gown. I'm like, oh, man, you know, I just wanted to blow my brains out. But at the end of the conversation, they said, you can do anything you want with it, but that's what we want. And all I heard was the, you can do anything you want with it. So it was sort of a, the reason I think the pilot feels somewhat different. It was like a band getting together and then learning what everyone could play. And at the same time, me willfully ignoring, frankly, a, a lot of stuff. And thinking, if, if this doesn't work or if this fails, I at least want to be able to fail on my own terms. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it, it's a long answer to a short question, and I'm not sure it's a clear answer, but it's, 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 it's no, realistic. It, you know, and, and the other great discovery was they could do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember we were shooting the pilot, and um, 
we'd, 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 we'd get a scene and, and Bob would turn to me like, yo cat? And I'd go, one more faster? And he would go faster? And I would go faster. And we'd do like, we'd amp it up three or four times because it was always fascinating to see how fast you could go and still have the audience comprehend what was going on. It also, it sounds ridiculous, but it, it was very forgiving of the writing, <laughs> the speed. <laughs> I used to say that the faster you do it, the more they'll forgive the writing. Boom. And um, it gave it a kind of elan that made it seem very, very different. And the courage of our convictions with all of that stuff increased as we moved through it. So the pilot is probably in some ways the most conventional of the shows that we did. It was also a pilot and I constantly needed ABC's blessing to do it. Mm -hmm. So you sort of, your worst impulses don't come out. You know, that isn't when you say iambic pentameter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah right you know we'll get um, we'll get to the shakespeare okay uh, in, in a couple seasons no i i, I mean <laughs> all right so so the one thing the one thing about the pilot that is uh that is immediately apparent i mean it, like it's it's wild to watch bruce willis appear on the screen fully formed as bruce willis i mean like it it is it is it is it is a genuine kind of revelation to be like oh that's that's him. That's the guy who I have watched my whole life being a movie star. Like it's, it is, it is fascinating. And I, I just wanted to, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Willis and his, his work for you, but also just, just him as an actor and, and as a, as a, uh, you know, a, a kind of force uh, on the, on the screen. Well, I mean, what can you say? He, <laughs> We used to, <laughs> like I say, I knew when I saw him and I actually chased him after he auditioned, I turned to the people I was with and went, wow. And they thought I was talking about the guy before him. I chased him down the street and said, can you come back tomorrow? Cause he was dressed very unconventionally. He was in town to audition for Desperately Seeking Susan. And his hair was all shaved off and he was wearing a bunch of earrings. And he was wearing camo and <laughs> it was just, um, but I kind of knew it. It's, this has happened to me a few times in my life where I've, I've encountered an actor and just went, I can write for that person or I can direct that person. There's some connection. I had the same, it seems ridiculous to talk about this now because he's so thought of as a great dramatic actor, but it was not the case at the time. I had the same feeling about Michael Keaton before we did Clean and Sober. And there were certainly a lot of people who thought that was an insane idea to mm-hmm. put him in the middle of that movie. Um, I had the same, we never worked together, but I had a number of conversations with Richard, with Richard Dreyfuss because I just felt this sort of understanding and blah, blah, blah. But with Bruce, I, it was immediate. There was just this immediate sort of thing. Um, and I also thought we could talk to each other. Um, when we were doing the pilot of Moonlighting, Bruce's instinct was to play the tough guy. That was what his, where his comfort lived at that moment in his life. And I kept going and going, no, 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 no. You wear that. That's you. You don't need to help sell that. I said, you're Lee Marvin, but I want you to be in Cat Blue first. Mm-hmm. I want you to lead with your heart, not your, I don't know if you can curse on this show. Um, Go ahead. 
Yeah, no, I, I actually said to him, I said, I want you to lead with your heart, not your dick. I said, you have to stop selling that. I said, it comes with you. Um, and it took him a little bit to get that. Uh, I think partly because he was intimidated. There was Sybil Shepherd. There were all these lights. There were all these cameras. And the only film work he'd done at that time was he, he'd been an extra in a Frank Sinatra movie back in New York. I mean, he, he was an accomplished actor in that he was in the third cast of Fool for Love off Broadway, but he hadn't done film work. Mm-hmm. And by the way, neither had I. I mean, we were both fucking idiots, to be honest with you. Um, I remember we were doing this big fight scene and he had a, um, a fireplace uh, tool and he was swinging at this guy and then he would punch him. But every time he would punch the guy, he would go, kruh, kruh, <laughs> like, like you're a kid in a kid fight. Sure. And <laughs> I had to go to him, pull him aside. Say, Bruce, you can't. He went, I was doing that. You know, I mean, we were <laughs> both such virgins and such primitives, if you will. Um, but at the same time, it created a kind of trust. You know, we knew we could talk to each other. And he would come in every week and he'd go, what do you want to do this week? And I'd say, uh, let's do a musical. Let's do a fight show. Let's do this. Let's do that. He was game. He was game for anything. He, like me, could not believe they were allowing us to do this and was convinced that at some point somebody was going to come up to us and tap us on the shoulder and say, you have six hours to get out of town. We're on to you. Um, Sybil had a very different perspective. She had been a huge movie star and then had seen her career cool and that that's just a very different place to be so it took her a a while to understand what we were doing or to care about it to be perfectly honest with you Mm -hmm. um but once she got it she got it and what's extraordinary is she was so good at it i'm not sure i fully appreciated how good she was at it at the time because she was much more um she required a lot more attention you know, and and I, there was part of me that uh, resented that a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wasn't quite as able to see, my God, she's amazing in the show. I mean, amazing in the show. Yeah. Um, you know, anyway. A lot of- and it. And that's a, and that's a hard role that she's playing in a way, because it it it, it can it could very easily morph into uh you know pure straight man pure kind of uh, shrewish uh you know like hectoring like but in in but she very much holds her own with uh willis on the screen i mean it, it it's again it's interesting watching the evolution of the series and frankly i think she's i think she's pretty good with him right at the start i mean i i they they seem to have pretty good chemistry i agree but... no no i agree she just um She she was less excited about being there than the rest of us. Yeah, that makes <laughs> so uh, yeah. So you know, and and so you go, hmm. Hey, we're having a party, and this person doesn't want to be part of the party, and um, you know, uh, and she uh, she was a tough cookie, um, and she was a little older than than we were, and mm-hmm. I was the village idiot. I mean, it wasn't like I had something I could point to and say. Look what I did. Here's the reason you should listen to me. Um, you know, it, it was I was asking for a leap of faith. Um, so you know, um, yeah. that's fine. 
it, I mean, it's I, you know, it's it's hard. It, let's let, I, one more, just one more question about uh, Bruce Anything. Willis, and then we'll sure. uh, we'll move on. I I I mean, I I understand you have been uh, in touch with him recently. You know, he uh, was diagnosed with aphasia, and um, it's it's I'm sure very hard for uh, him and and his loved ones. Uh, I'm j- I'm just curious if you. Uh, if you have anything you can share about how he's doing now. Um, I always hesitate to do this. I made a, I, 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 I made a statement about his condition, I guess about a month, month and a half ago, and it just went all over the world. And I, I, I felt badly about it because, frankly, it's not my place to talk about mm-hmm. it. It's the yeah. families. Here's the good news. He is surrounded by people who love him. His his family, his kids, his wife, Emma, um, Demi, I mean, they love him and they are devoted to him and they are uh, dealing with this thing with such enormous grace. Um, and it is devastating. It is devastating, especially to see somebody, I, I've said this before, who has so much joie de vie and then it's just channeled in a different way. I don't quite know how to explain it. Um, You know, we've always stayed friends, um, partly because we came from the same place, partly because when we were doing Moonlighting, nobody knew who we were. And Mm -hmm. then people knew who we were. And then, of course, he became a huge international movie star. But, But when you go through that experience together, I think it just, you know, um, and uh, he he's always been an, an amazing person. I you know um, I, I I mentioned this before, and I think people were surprised by it. Bruce Willis was a voracious reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't think people people don't look at him and think voracious reader. But you know, this is a guy who put up his own money to make a movie based on a Kurt Vonnegut story. Sure. Um, sure. Bruce is Bruce is 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 much. Uh, there's a lot more there. And I used to get angry with him and say, you know, you need to go to Marty Scorsese and say, I'll be the third guy through the door. You need to work with great people. And he did, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously he worked with Quentin and he worked with Robert Rodriguez and he worked with, you know, uh, M. Night. And um, my favorite performance of his was for Robert Benton. He did an amazing movie for Bob Zemeckis. Um, But, but, he, he much, much, much more talented than I think people understood. Um, there, there was a moment when he realized, "Oh my gosh, they're gonna they're gonna pay me a king's ransom to hold a gun." I guess I should probably hold a gun. Um, yeah. But, but an enormously talented person. And and when you frankly, when you look at Moonlighting, his virtuosity verbally. Is the thing, and you know that's the reason we looked at three thousand men. To be able to do that is is a rare gift, and he was able to do it because he understood that it was music, and mm-hmm. he was a musician. I mean, he would call me from the set, and he'd say, "You better get down here. They're messing with your stuff. They don't understand the meter." And um, he understood meter, and mm-hmm. he understood, and Sybil understood. It. She understood it in a different way. But she understood it, and um, anyway, I I I love him to death, and um, 
What was the question? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, I mean, it's it's just sad. I and I, you know. Uh, but the good news I, I will say is he's surrounded by people who love him, and he's he's. Yeah. I think having the best life he possibly can, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just I, you know, I uh, uh, again as somebody who grew up essentially just grew up with Bruce Willis kind of in my life all the time as a movie and TV watcher. It's, you know, um, it was, uh, it was sad news, but that, that is good to hear. Like, let's, you, you, you mentioned, you've mentioned music and the show being like music and, and the, but let's talk about actual music here for a second, because here is the thing. Here's the thing you always hear when a classic show has had trouble getting on DVD or on streaming. Uh, you know, they, they couldn't, they couldn't clear the rights. And I would like I would like to get your perspective as somebody who has just had who you say spent, you know, several years. We've spent a long time trying to get this on TV as uh, as a showrunner, as an executive producer. What is it like uh, to get the rights clearances? I mean, what is the actual step by step process here? You have an episode. There's a song in it. How do you actually go about getting that performance allowed for a new medium? Well, it's changed. Uh, I mean, when we were doing Moonlighting, nobody was doing it. It was basically me and Michael Mann. But mm -hmm. as much as Michael was doing it, we were doing it much more so. I mean, just to give you a perspective, we had 66 episodes of Moonlighting. We used 300 songs. Mm -hmm. So we had to go back and re-clear or attempt to re-clear 300 songs. Um, so there was, no, there was no template legally or any of that stuff. We found... I wish I could remember his name. He was a guy who worked in the music business who sort of said, oh, I'll help you out. And he would make the calls and get the clearances. And I mean, uh, um, I remember once Phil Spector actually came and hand delivered at the master for, um, um, I can't remember the name of the song, it was a Shirelle song, um, so that we could use it. I mean, no one was doing this back then. So the rights that were cleared, no one had anticipated even VHS, no one had anticipated cable. So we didn't get any of those rights. The rights we got were the rights we got. And when, I want to say when ABC sold the show to Lionsgate for DVDs, they weren't back and were able to clear a lot of stuff. Uh, but not all of it. And they also made a couple of mistakes um, mm -hmm. in terms of inserting music that wasn't, shouldn't have been where it was and stuff like that. Um, most of which we were able to correct before it went to Hulu. Um, but there was no formal system. Now, since then, it's changed. Like when I was doing Medium and we wanted to clear a song, there was a whole apparatus set up at CBS to tell you no. Um, that's a joke. You can laugh at it later. Uh, but, but uh, you know, and it, it also had become a big business, mm -hmm. you know, very, very expensive business. So you had to be much more judici judicious about. But I mean, when I had an instinct about music on, on Moonlighting, I just went after it. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple of times we got a no, but not often. People were like, sure, yeah. You know, and we would break music on the show, you know, the Pet Shop Boys or... Um, uh, you know, a lot of different things, you know, I, I would hear something and go, oh, I love the sense of that. I love the feel of that. Um, and we, we'd incorporate it in the show. The, the, probably the most famous story is, you know, Phil Ramone called me um, and he said, Billy Joel wrote a song and he wrote it with your show in mind. Can I send it to you? Mm -hmm. Like you'd say no. Yeah. 
<laughs> so he sends me this nine-minute song, Big Man on Mulberry Street. Yeah. And I had been dying to do, to find an excuse, frankly, to do storytelling through dance. Um, and I decided, okay, this is, this is where I was going to plant my flag. So we did that. And I actually was able to talk Stanley Donnan into coming yeah. and directing it. And, um, it, you know, I mean, it was, I, it, part of it was, you know how they say ignorance is bliss? I was completely unafraid because I didn't know how afraid to be. Um, I mean, it was the same thing that allowed me to pick up the phone and call Orson Welles. I think a lot of people assumed, oh, that must have been Sybil, but it wasn't because Orson had actually lived at Peter Bogdanovich's house right. for a while. But it wasn't. Um, I literally picked up the phone and called him and said, hey, we've got this show and we're doing this black and white thing and we need someone to introduce it and explain it. And, and he said, oh, he said, well, what do you want me to say? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, write it up and send it to me. And if I like it, maybe I'll do it. And so I wrote that, that intro up, you know, about locking the kids and the dog and grandma in the basement and all that. And he thought it was funny. And so he came over. And by the way, one of the greatest days of my life. I mean, there's Orson Welles and you're supposed to direct, you know, which is an absurd proposition anyway. And the soundstage was filled with people, 300 people. Everybody just wanted to be there to see him. And... Um, Anyway, you would, we would find a song, we'd try it against the picture, unless it was something that we imagined prior to that. Uh, and if it worked, um, I would tell this gentleman whose name I can't remember, and he would call and he'd secure the rights. And it, it, the other thing we did, you have to understand, Moonlighting was weird because, and, and if I get too much in the weeds here, just stop me. Back are good. Then, the show was weeds. <laughs> back then, um, if you ran, if you owned a television network, you could not make television shows because it was a thing called the Finn Sin Rules. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that you couldn't make the television shows. What it said was if you made the television show, you couldn't syndicate the television shows. Those were two separate businesses. Mm -hmm. And ABC decided to take a flyer and see if they couldn't chip away at that. And Moonlighting was the flyer. They said, we're going to make this show. And uh, we're going to own this show. And back then, people didn't do that. So as a result, they didn't have any, I mentioned that only because they didn't have any of these sort of the internal workings that other studios had. So if I said, I want a song, they were like, well, that's good. I want a song. Okay, fine. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with that. Um, they also, no one can tell you what the first six episodes cost. Mm -hmm. they, we didn't even have accounting stuff. In, but, and then once we had accounting stuff, they went, oh, my God, this kid's crazy. Because <laughs> I would shoot them until I was happy with them. They'd say, you know, you have seven days. And I'd go, no, no. I, I, I mean, I was so naive and so, I suppose others might say arrogant. Um, but I really felt, and I would lecture them. And I'd say, if it's really good, people will watch it more than once. You can repeat yeah. it. And it was true. They would run it three, four times and it would get, you know, a 32 share. And so they were like, okay, you know. Um, so we would shoot them till they were right, you know, and we'd go after guest stars that other people didn't go after and we'd, we'd, we'd get music. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's funny. You, you dropped two names there. I mean, I, the uh, the Orson Welles episode is great. It's, you know, uh, kind of this classic black and white dream sequence 
thing. It's 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 amazing to watch. But then you also you mentioned you just kind of casually tossed off Stanley Donnan, who, of course, is the director of Singing in the Rain uh, and and uh, uh, for this episode, Big Man on Mulberry Street. There's this, I mean. Feature film quality, 12 minute dance sequence right in the middle of it with Bruce Willis just all over the place. I mean, I like it's a it's it's a it's a crazy sequence. I, and how long did that actually take to shoot? I mean, I feel like that's the sort of thing where you you sit down and you think like, all right, I'm gonna do a dance sequence. And then, you know, three weeks later, you're still trying to put together the thing. Or was it or was it just so fast because you had, you know, one of the great. It, it, well, musical directors when I called Stanley and I, I knew Stanley. Because he produced the Academy Awards the year before. And he asked me to help write it with uh, Larry um, Gilbart. So I knew him a little bit. So I called him and I said, listen, I've got this dance sequence. Will you do it? And he said, well, how long will I have? I said, you'll have a day. And he started to laugh. <laughs> and he said, well, how much will you pay me? I said, well, I can't pay you. <laughs> but I convinced him to do it. We ended up shooting it in three days. Okay. I mean, actual shooting days, three days. Right. The key to that was obviously Stanley and Stanley's genius, but also we hired Sandal Bergman, who was the lead dancer in All That Jazz, Bob Fosse's movie, a terrific actress, but an amazing, legendary dancer. And um, to dance the female, it was constructed, frankly, so that Sybil wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. Because the, Sybil's process was such that we knew that we'd, we'd never be able to get through it. So she comes in at the very end, kind of swoops mm-hmm. in. Um, uh, but it took three days. And again, one of the greatest experiences of my life. You know, you're watching this master kind of do what he does. And he was, you know, he, he hired Jackie and Bill Landrum were the choreographers. Um, and they did a fantastic job. But of course, it was Stanley Donnan who, um, who oversaw the whole thing. And I, I was very inspired by something he had done earlier in his career. And I showed it to him. And I said, these are the things that I'm sort of reacting to, and blah, 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 blah. And this is the reason why I want to tell this story and this thing. Um, but honestly, one of the great highlights of my life. Yeah. I, I, and again, like, I think this is the third season. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, second, but season. The, second season. It was second season. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like early, it's early in the, yeah, relatively we, early we, in the we run hit of the show. our stride really early on. Um, yeah. That was one of them. The black and white episode was one of them. Um, there are a bunch that are, I'm still like, I'm still sort of amazed that we pulled well, them off. Well, let, let's talk about that a little bit because, again, I, you know, I, I'm seeing, I, I, again, as I'm watching the show, um, and I'm, I'm kind of skipping around a little bit because I, I frankly, I 60 some hours of TV. It's, it's hard to, but I, I know it's, I know it's hard to believe, you know, two, two kids under the age of eight um, running all around, but the, uh, but the, the, the things that are in this show, uh, are things that if you had told them to me, I would have been like, what are you talking about? I mean, like it is a, uh, not just uh, dance sequences dream sequences frequent fourth wall breaks um uh the the claymation episode uh you know i like i'm watching the show and i'm thinking to myself these are the sorts of things that i see on a show like community or rick and morty and i'm like oh this is you know this is real groundbreaking stuff but it it, but here it is all before 
Yeah. And I, it's it's wild. It's wild to watch. But I like, you know, I I, I, I don't e- I haven't even asked a question yet. I don't know what the question because it's it's I'm, I'm curious to get your uh, your take. You know, you say we we just didn't we didn't have rules. We, we, we didn't we didn't ask. But I, I it has to be it had to have been kind of daunting to just sit here and be like, we're going to do all these things. So a and- lot of them were born of necessity. You mentioned the claymation episode. We were going through a really difficult period. Sybil was wildly unhappy um, and frankly wouldn't come to work for a week or two at a time. She would claim she was sick. And the, the network was so terrified of discovering she wasn't sick that they wouldn't send a doctor. And But we had episodes to finish. And um, I, it sounds like a sick joke, but I, I thought, what if I got a claymation Sybil? <laughs> And so I called, again, you know, dumb fearlessness. I called Will Vinton in Northern California, the guy who did the California Raisins. And I said, can you make me a claymation symbol? And he went, oh, yeah, I could do that. And, um, and the, the punchline of the story is so we created the whole episode because we had to complete an episode. And I went to Sybil's house with a Nagra, which was the, at the time the way you recorded sound. And she laid in bed and recorded the whole part. It probably took her an hour. And she thought this was the greatest invention in the history of film. Because um, that's how that was born. I'll, I'll tell you a better one. We did an episode that I'm still really fond of called The Straight Poop. And it was at the height of the mania about the show. And at the height of all the gossip about he hates her and she hates him. And all they do is fight on the set. And she threw a briefcase at me and blah, blah, all that nonsense. And um, we hadn't had a new, and there was a lot of discord. And frankly, I was probably the reason for a lot of it because I I had the same attitude about the scripts as I did about the shows, which is we'll shoot them when they're ready. We'll shoot them when they're good. This whole medium is filled with a bunch of crap that presumes the audience doesn't deserve to be authentically entertained. I was very, very, very highfalutin about all this. Um, And uh, as a result, we were way behind on episodes. And uh, I went to an event, I think it was a thing for Brendan Tartikoff, and I was standing on a valet line waiting to get my car back. And I looked down the valet line and I saw this little tiny woman and I realized it was Rona Barrett. And Rona Barrett back then was the number one sort of gossip columnist. Uh, I don't know who you, I guess you'd compare her to TMZ today. Sure. Um, sure. So I walked over to her. She didn't know me. I walked over, I said, I introduced myself. I said, hi, do you have any interest in being on Moonlighting? And she went, what? And I said, are you available tomorrow? Could you come to 20th Century Fox tomorrow? And she went, sure. I said, okay, be there at at 6 a.m. So she showed up at 6 a.m. And I put earwigs in Bruce and I put an earwig in Sybil. And we literally created the the framework for what was basically a clip show. Mm -hmm. But the premise of the show was Rona Barrett was going to come on our set and find out why the heck we couldn't make an episode on time. Why was there so much fighting? Why didn't she like him? Why didn't he like her? And she was going to get the scoop on one. And we made it up as we went along. I would just whisper things into Bruce's ear, whisper things into Sybil's ear, and, and even run over to Rona and say, ask this question. And I mean, at one point, I actually ran over to her and said, 
ask him about his hair because he was gradually, you know, losing his mm-hmm. hair. Sure. I mean, anything, nothing was off. I had Sybil come out and hold up a piece of gauze when she realized she was being filmed as if to, to acknowledge the fact that we tend to shoot her through filters. I mean, it was, it was just a really meta, and I'm still really proud of it, but we did the episode in a day. Mm-hmm. But my point is that, that necessity was what cr- created the inspiration. It wasn't, it wasn't like I said, I'm going to do an episode with Rona Barrett or I'm going to do a claimation. I, in a million years, I wouldn't have said, I mean, there were things I wanted to do that I never got around to. I always wanted to have Bruce light a, light a match on the edge of the screen, you know, like a, as if it were, sure. you know, sort of a Bugs Bunny moment. Um, uh, and we wanted to do and did test to do a 3D episode, mm-hmm. um, which uh, interestingly, um, I ran into him before he died. Um, Pee Wee Herman, uh, Paul. Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens bought the test footage somehow. <laughs> he told me, oh. so he said, I have that footage. I bought that footage. Um, but uh, a lot of it was, like I say, you know, uh, your back's against the wall and you try and think of a creative, you know, and some of it's just emotion. Like I remember the Christmas episode. I just felt like we need to acknowledge that 300 people come together every day to make this thing. And those people have, you know, wives and husbands and partners and children. And what the hell is Christmas but that, you know? So we turned around the camera and showed everybody. And, you know, if I'm also, if I'm being completely honest, a lot of the stuff that we were giving credit for being wildly original about wasn't that wildly original. I mean, I was shocked when the fourth wall thing took off because I was like, did you guys never see a Hope and Crosby movie? Did you sure. never see Burns and Allen? Did you, you know, um, I mean, I, I, that, that was one of the things that Bruce and I used to joke about was how in the Hope and Crosby movies, you know, Bob Hope would turn to the camera all the time and go, can you believe we're doing this? You know, and I always loved that conceit. And I loved, as a kid, I would see these old reruns of the Abbott and Costello show. I mean, they, they were long done by the time I was a kid, but they'd show the reruns. And they would come out in front of the audience before the show started and they would talk to the audience. <clears throat> and I loved it. So I started to do the same thing. That was also, by the way, born of we would shoot the show and I was always in the editing room. And sometimes the show would come in a minute and a half, two minutes short. Mm-hmm. And it was an advertising medium, you know, it was about, and so they, the shows had to be to time. So I would just set up a camera and we'd shoot these the openers or when we were first nominated i think it was we were nominated for 16 emmys we went to the emmys and we lost we didn't win a single freaking emmy and we had been nominated for more emmys than, but part of it was we were just so different than every other show and we were young and blah 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 yeah but i thought we can't let this get unspoken to and it was a sunday night and the show was on tuesday so literally on monday they came in and I had written this whole thing where about Bruce and his mother's ill and good news will make her feel better. Maybe she'll live. And uh, we shot it in one shot. But this was in the old days. So in order to mix it, we had to mix it without anything to look at. And, and then somehow beam it up and get it to ABC in time to broadcast on Tuesday. And we did it. We pulled it off. Um, but it, again, it was born of, to some extent, you know, necessity and also wanting to be in the moment. I, I, you know, when I was in college, uh, Saturday Night Live premiered and Saturday Night Live was like a revelation. 
And part of the reason I felt it was a revelation was it lived in the moment. There was yeah. no artifice about this is going to live forever. It was right there. And that was something that uh, hour-long television uh, didn't do at that time. And I felt, you know, that was an element that would make the show special. It was important to me. And, and you know. Yeah. Well, let me, I, can we talk a little bit about your, your process? Cause I, I, I was reading a little bit about, uh, the writing of the show and, and your, um, uh, and, and how you guys did it. And there, you, you had mentioned, uh, you, you'd mentioned something about the, you wanted all the, all this, all the scripts went through your typewriter at mm -hmm. least once, you know, like more, more or less. Yeah. Uh, and. But, and I don't think that's unusual. By the way. I think that well, happens more than people realize on shows. Well, so that's that's what I wanted to ask. It, it, like how you know that because that's the sense I get with something like with something like Mad Men or The Sopranos. Certainly in this age of the like auteurist showrunner type thing, I like that is the sense that I. But I I don't know I don't know if that was also true for network television. I mean I'm I'm I, uh, I, I can only really speak to the television that I did. And it was true for the television that I did. Um, but the reason I felt the right to do it, the first show I did was Taxi. I, I was mm -hmm. brought on as a writer on Taxi. And I wrote an episode that was a, uh, it was a big sweeps episode. But the truth is, when I handed in the script, there was rewriting done on it. And it was one of the first things I'd ever done. And I was devastated to discover that someone was going to rewrite me. And then I was devastated to discover they were going to rewrite me, but they weren't going to put their name on it. And I was, I was very grateful, but at the same time sort of puzzled. And I asked, why is that the case? And they explained to me that Jim Brooks' philosophy was, hey, I'm the executive producer and I hired you. And to the extent that you were able to do the thing that I needed you to do, I'm grateful. But to the extent that you couldn't at that moment do the thing that I needed you to do, that's my responsibility. And I thought, oh, he's right. Oh, wow, that's interesting. And I sort of carried that with me. Mm -hmm. so when I was in a position, um, I always wanted people to know, I won't put my name on your I mean, it's interesting because some of the shows you mentioned, people have said, God, that person's name is on every script. Um, but the truth is there's a reason there's a staff there. And a lot of the great ideas for shows, I mean, one show I almost completely didn't touch was uh, Atomic Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just so well executed. Um, uh, Ron, uh, Ron and Jeff, um, Ron Osborne and Jeff Reno just did a, a phenomenal job. But most of the scripts were phenomenal. They just, sometimes they just needed some tuning. They needed, you know, it's really about keeping the voices the same and keeping the style the same. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I know I wasn't the only one who did that. I know that others, I think David Kelly. Uh, sure. You know, sure. Uh, and then, of course, when, as you say, when we got into the more tourist period, um, a lot of people started to do it. But everybody does it differently. Aaron does it differently. Sorkin. Um, um, and I'm just going to say this because nobody says it. His movie, Return to the Chicago 7, not Return to the Chicago 7, um, uh, the Chicago 7. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, no, I've not, I've not seen it. Okay. It's a phenomenal okay. movie. Anyway, uh, and got... it kind of got lost in COVID. God, yeah. Amazing piece of work. Anyway. Um, oh, no. Oh, the, the trial of the Chicago, Chicago, Chicago 7. 7. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I walked yeah, up yeah, to yeah, I did see. I did see that. I actually did see that. I, I take it back. I'm sorry. I was... Uh, uh, 
there's a lot of good stuff that got lost during COVID because it, it didn't get a launch, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. But that was really, for me, one of the really heartbreakers. Anyway, everybody does it differently and everybody does it the same. It, 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 whenever I meet a showrunner, the first thing I ask them is, so how do you do it? Because it's an insane proposition. Mm-hmm. And that's why I marvel like at Mad Men, which I, for me is like one of the all-time amazing shows. And you say, how did they do it? How do you get that much greatness? Not just in the writing, but in the directing, in the production design, in the use of music, in the casting. It's a monumental feat because you're doing it on a moving train. Mm-hmm. A movie is a, you know, I've directed movies. A movie is a painting. And there's a tremendous amount of contemplation involved. But a television series doesn't allow for much contemplation because you always have the next one and the next one, the next one, the next one. On Moonlighting, I, again, youth, stupidity, arrogance, call it what you will. I tried to ignore that as much as possible. I'd say, no, I'm not ready yet. No, I'm not ready yet. No, I'm not ready yet. And at a point they said, you know what? We're done with you. (laughs) And they sort of move you aside. Um, but, But most television shows, even Moonlighting, when we were making it, there's a, there's a bell ringing all the time going, you've got to get this done. You've got to get this done. You've got to get this done. Let me, I, I want to, I, I want to go back to the trial of the Chicago seven for a second here, because it, 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 it did kind of run into the COVID thing, but it also ran into the being a Netflix original being on streaming thing. Hmm. And here's, here's here. I, I bring this up because, you know, uh, looking looking back at Moonlighting, you have a show that is putting up a, a thirty nine share at, at a tight right? right. It is it is dominating uh, the 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 attention because tens of millions of people are all watching it on a given night, and it's like we're tuning in, we're watching it. People are leaving restaurants early because they got to get home because they they can't tape it. You know, it like that doesn't exist. And now now we have a very different media ecosystem where it's not just the network tv shows uh and it's not just the uh you know prestige cable networks you know your fx or your hbo or whatever um but there's also you know uh, a a functionally limitless number of hours that are being filled by netflix uh, paramount plus uh, hbo max etc etc i i i just wonder i as somebody who has been making television now for 40 some years. I like, what do you, what do you think of when you see this, the fracturing of the monoculture into this wildly diverse set of, I don't know, a set of, set of things that nobody is, is all watching at the same time. I like, I find, I find it maddening as a critic. I'm curious what your take is as a, as a creator. It's frustrating, but it is. And you can only lament it for so long before it becomes counterproductive. Um, and I only lament it because I think there are some great things that get missed. Um, uh, I still run into people who have never heard of normal people. Mm-hmm. You know, and you go, I mean, to me, again, one of the great, really great accomplishments uh, in television the last five years. Um, mm-hmm. That's the thing that, that disturbs me is that you can make something that's truly special. And it can just kind of go up in the ether. Um, um, But it is what it is. This is the moment that we live in. And I love what I do 
So I'm not going to let the fact that there aren't 40 million people watching it at the same time stop me from doing it. Um, you know, it's a very yeah. practical answer, but it's the yeah. only one I have. No, I, I, I mean, it's, it's true. I, again, it's, it's. I lament uh, more than that. I lament the death of movies being mm-hmm. at the center of the culture. I mean, when I was growing up, we lived for, you know, getting the newspaper and seeing what was coming out. And it was a great, extraordinary moment in American cinema, you know, revolutionary moment in American cinema. The other thing, too, that was none of this stuff was ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you said, God, I want to see that again, you would have to wait Mm -hmm. to find it. I I tell the story. I was at a New Year's Eve party and uh, Disney had just announced that they were going to release the seven classics on VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. I thought this was sacrilege. <laughs> not, not making people wait for it to come in the movie theater to see them. And I, uh, I, I told the head of Disney, I thought he was making an enormous mistake. And he laughed at me. Anyway, um, and of course I was wrong. But, but, but it, there was something special. And I try and explain it to my children. There was something special about the anticipation and then about the collegial experience, you know, you're sitting in a place with 100, 200 people. I mourn that. I mourn the mm-hmm. idea of a movie capturing the public's imagination and everybody having a conversation over four or five or six months about it because it yeah. stayed in the, in the system that long. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that is a, the, the ephemerality of, uh, of so much of, of what, comes out now is is also fairly frustrating um and hard to hard to deal with you know we're we're hitting an hour here and that's that's longer than uh i usually like to go so i'm gonna um i'm just i want to make sure i think i've hit everything actually that i wanted to to discuss with you but i always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything i should have asked uh if there's anything you think folks should know about about moonlighting or the world of tv and and movies in general um, the, the one thing, and I think people know it, but it's worth saying, particularly in these kind of interviews, because they, they, <clears throat> they tend to throw the light on, on one or two or three people. Um, movies, and especially television shows, are made by villages, um, mm-hmm. lots of people. And um, I had the, the good fortune to work with amazing people. You mentioned Robert Butler at the beginning of this. Um, Jay Daniel, who was the physical producer of Moonlighting, was one of the most patient and inventive people I've ever worked with. I mean, I would say, hey, let's do a pie fight in a hotel ballroom. And I'd say it at 10 o'clock in the morning, knowing we had to shoot it the next morning. And Jay would figure out how to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. He he was an amazing co-conspirator, if you will. But also the crews, I mean, Jerry Finneman was our cinematographer and he was somebody who studied at the foot of Harry Stradling Jr., who was a great studio cinematographer and shot a lot of the classic, what we think of as classic films from the 40s and 50s. Um, the crews, the and the other writers, I mentioned Ron and Jeff, but there, there were many others, Chick Eggley, Karen Hall, uh, Roger Director. Uh, I know I'm going to leave people out, but it, it was a, a collaboration of the best kind and the best shows invariably are um we we 
they do it in the movies too. We create this sort of myth, the myth of a single person. And it's true. I mean, Christopher Nolan is an outstanding and amazing person. And by the way, Oppenheimer is an amazing movie. But part of what makes him so special is he surrounded himself with people who, who get the joke and who enjoy getting the joke. And I was very lucky and have been very lucky throughout my career. Most of the time, I'm able to do the same thing. I'm not comparing myself to Christopher Nolan in any way, shape, or form, but I'm saying it is a, it is a group enterprise. Um, and that would be the one thing I didn't get a chance to touch on, so I appreciate the opportunity to do it. Totally. Uh, I, and look, uh, folks, if, you, if you've never watched Moonlighting, um, it, it, it is, again, it is, it is wild to, uh, to see uh, Bruce Willis kind of appear and there he is and he's he's the guy and and just to watch the show and the rat-a-tat-tat of the dialogue i i'm curious you know what i i take it back i had one more question okay the 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 average (laughs) i'm curious what the average script length was for an episode of this show because it 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 the the rapidity of the dialogue the 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 quickness of the back and forth leads me to think that this was not a minute a page no uh, as no, is the standard the it, standard breakdown it was um just to give you an example the pilot was 156 pages um and came in six minutes short and we put <laughs> everything in it um typically episodes would be 80 or 90 pages long um and back then we were shooting i want to say 45 minute episodes 46 minute episodes i may be slightly mm-hmm. off on that um so and that was one of the first fights that I had because I would hand in these big scripts and they'd say, you have to cut this. And I'd say, no. And then they, 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 they got it fairly quickly. You know, you, you look at it and the reality hits you. Um, and the good news, as I said, was we didn't have an accounting department. So there was nobody saying, you know, um, but, but yeah, the, the scripts tended to be about twice as long. But that's been the case. I mean, even on Bull, which is the last network show that I did. They certainly weren't 86 pages, but they were longer and denser than a typical script. The other thing that that I do on my shows is I probably write in a little more detail. Um, I try and create as fully realized a picture as I can, if only to make the discussions as specific as possible, even if it's going to change. I'm not saying... It can't change, but I'm saying, here's where we're starting. And I always say to actors, when I, well, you know, when I went to Patricia Arquette to do Medium, um, I said to her, I said, I will never ask you to find the scene. You'll never be put in that position. Um, and I'll do everything in my power never to embarrass you. I would never knowingly embarrass you. Um, so we put a tremendous amount of effort and detail into the script um, because it helps down the line for everybody, for all the departments, for all the other artists. Um, so yeah, long answer to a short question. I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 that's great. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. No, thank uh, again, you for having I'm, I'm, me. I'm a big, I have big been... fan, man. I love, <laughs> love, the, I listen to it thank all you. the time. Thank you. Hopefully it met expectations, uh, but I, I very much appreciate you saying that. Um, again, I've been talking to uh, Glenn Gordon Karen. Uh, the creator and showrunner on Moonlighting. Uh, it's on Hulu now. Go check it out. It really looks great. I, you mentioned briefly earlier the, the restoration process that Disney did on this. It, it looks great uh, oh. for for a show that you know. Again, it's forty years old. It's you you, but it looks it looks 
really good on the uh, on the streaming. I'll so, tell them you uh, said so. They they put a lot of work into it. It it it's it's top top notch. Um, but anyway, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Be good now. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at the Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. <laughs>